Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today is Dr. Timothy Snyder. He's the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University, permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Uh, he speaks five and reads 10 European languages, so I'm out after three. You, you got me on that. But he, he's here to talk to us about a, a couple of things, and starting out is the graphic representation of his book, Tyranny. I got that one right, I hope. Uh, so when we come back after this important commercial break, we'll, because we have to pay the bills, of course, we'll have Dr. Timothy Snyder. Stick around. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at JATQ Podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us again is Dr. Timothy Snyder who joins us from uh, Yale University in his office today. Uh, Dr. Snyder, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you again. I, I'll, I'm going to start out by uh, just asking this question. What, what's, what's the graphic? Why graphic? And what are we doing with tyranny? Tell me about it. So, uh, I, so I, wrote, I wrote on tyranny in, in late 2016 under the impression of, of Donald Trump having won the election. And the idea was to remind Americans that freedom is something that you do. It's not something that just comes naturally. I was, I was afraid, and I was right to be afraid, that a lot of folks would say, nothing like this has ever happened before, so what can we do? And so in the book, I, in the 20 lessons of the book, I wanted to say, actually, things like this have happened before, and there are wise people who can tell us what to do. I was also afraid lots of people would say, the institutions are going to save us. We're America. We're exceptional, and so on. And uh, I wanted to knock that reaction that reaction off as well, because obviously the institutions are only as good as we make them. And if you expect the institutions to be like some kind of outside force saving you, you're actually weakening the institutions, and you're making tyranny more likely. So I wrote the book all in a rush. I like I called on what I knew as an East European historian, as a historian of Nazi Germany, as a historian of the Soviet Union, to, to bring this book to play. And it had an effect. You know, it, it it lots of people read it. I heard from folks not just in the US but all around the world, to my surprise. Um, you know, from Turkey to India to, to Hong Kong to Latin America to Eastern Europe, pretty much everywhere. The reason why I wanted it to be graphic was that I wanted, I wanted to try to reach us in a different way because if freedom is something that you do and not just something which is done for you, then it means you have to be reflective about yourself. And the, the drawings that Nora Krug, who's a fantastic, talented artist has added, um, do that. Like they, they allow you to see yourself in the world in a way that I think only words can't do. 
And then by the way, like on tyranny has now been updated. So I, the lessons are all the same, but I've, I've changed some of the text to account for the things that happened in 2020 and early 2021. The things that you wrote about in the book and, and um, I, I, uh, two questions come from what you just said. Two, the, first, what came from the book about institutions? The number of times I've heard people say, and, and I, you know, I walk into that White House every day and they think that it's some kind of uh, sacrosanct church that will save you from, you know, from yourself. And it, it, since we're the government of, by, and for the people, I've often had a, had a problem making that connection, how a, an idea of an institution can save you if you're not involved in it. And yeah. Do you think that we've, that we've either failed or we haven't completely recognized that fact, or do you think that we're making the progress in the right direction? I think it's a very, I think it's a very mixed picture. I mean, first of all, Brian, you're making like you're making a very essential point about democracy. I mean, democracy means the people ruling, and the people aren't going to rule unless the people want to rule. And one of the problems with democracy is that, as people, we have a tendency not to want to take responsibility. We have a tendency to be afraid, to shy away, to think, as you say, that. Like a fl- an army is going to rescue us or a flag is going to rescue us or a, a nicely painted building is going to rec- rescue us or the right phrase is going to rescue us. But nothing's going to rescue us. Like the whole point of democracy is we're enlightened, free people. We're going to take responsibility for ourselves. And, the, and, and the, the temptation is not to do so. You know, The temptation is, in the case of some people, I mean, getting to your question, the temptation is to is to rather have a tribal leader, you know, to have somebody right. who tells you a big story, a big lie, something which is obviously not true, in which he himself obviously doesn't believe, but which is comfortable, you know, like, so Trump, Trump says he wins the elections, then you get to be on the winning side, you get, and you get to be a victim, and that's very comfortable, because like, you, you both get to win, and you get to lose at the same time, you get to feel like a winner and like a loser, which, by the way, is the classic, that's the classic fascist mix of emotions, like we should win, but somehow we're a victim at the, at the same time. So, are we making progress? I think it's very mixed. I think a lot of Americans learned a lot between 2016 and 2020. I think civil society reacted in 2020 very differently than it did in 2016. I think a lot of journalists learned to cover stories differently between 2016 and 2020. I think a lot of journalists and I'll others- I'll push back a little on that, but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, good, you should, because if you don't, then you're not taking responsibility for your people. But, but, but at least some some of the folks, you know, with whom I had Some journalists, with, yes. Yeah, yeah. Realize that you can't really do journalism without some kind of attention to facts, you know, that it's not just he said, she said, it's not just on the one side and the other side. It's not just Republicans and Democrats that balance, you know, there is balance doesn't make sense until you know what actually happens out in the world. With us, I think it's also that, as you say, I think journalists also fall into the trap of, of, of bowing to the tribal leader and, and Mm -hmm. for access purposes, I get to ride on Air Force One, I get to be at the White House. So I'm in the in crowd. So if I push too hard, then I'm not, I'm not going to be part of that in crowd. And therefore I won't be the winner. And I won't. And at the same time, I won't be able to, to, to cry that I'm, you know, being victimized. So it, I think journalists are representative of the country as a whole. And what concerns me when I, and especially when I hear what you have to say, and it's, I mean, it, it reflects, I see that every day. I, I go back to what a wiser man than I once said, and that is that uh, for democracy to succeed, we need to be well-informed, 
well-educated and participating. And I, I think that that's, isn't that where, I mean, today, you, if you have an election and 50% of the, of the voters get involved, you're, we're lucky. We consider that a good turnout if more than 50% turnout. So even if you have, if you elect someone, say it's by a slim majority of those votes that are cast and less than 50% of the votes are cast, that means that it's not majority rule, it's, it's ruling by uh, the majority of a minority. Does that make sense? Um, uh, yeah, it does. I want to I want to go back, though, to a couple of things that you said. I mean, sure. the, about access and about participation before we talk about like the, 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 the voting part of participation, because voting is only part of participation. And yeah. um, number one, you know, when you talk about access, like when you when that's pushed to the extreme, that becomes. Uh, an apology for, you know, as you said, the cult of a leader authoritarianism right. in my, so I'm an East European historian, like the, the classic case in my field of what you're talking about is the New York times, Moscow correspondent, Walter Durante in Moscow, yes. um, who, you know, managed to win a Pulitzer prize for reporting in which he basically apologized for Stalin's five-year plan. Um, including rationalizing and wrapping up in a kind of a nice wrapper, um, the, a famine which killed something like 4 million people in, in Soviet Ukraine. And that was about a number of things, but one of the things it was about was just what you said. Access. access right, access. But then let me continue the analogy. It was, then, it was illegal at that time to travel around the Soviet Union as a journalist. Like all you had was access. If you didn't have access, you didn't have anything. You couldn't actually go to Ukraine and report. It was impossible or close to impossible. One or two heroic people did it. And I mean, without saying that America is exactly the same, obviously you can get in your car and drive to North Dakota if you want to. We have, we, have a, we have a similar problem, kind of a minor key, which is that we've lost almost all of our local journalism. Yes. Right? So, so what we know about our country is no longer based on what journalists in, you know, I don't mean, I'm not making fun of any of these states in particular, but it's just in general, most of, most of America is now a news desert. I mean, territorially, most of the counties in the U.S. don't actually have a reporter anymore. Which was so, and so what that means is that it's everything is all askew. You know what what journalists. So this gets to participation. I mean, the way that journalists should be participating in our country is first of all, you know, knowing where the water's polluted in Kentucky. Yes. Right. Like that's that's like that's where participation starts, and then. And we don't know that. Like, so we're imitating authoritarian countries because it's all becomes all about access and it's not about actual knowledge, right? And then that in turn makes us more authoritarian because then the people, if you're a person and you don't, there are no reporters around you, what does participation look like? Participation means you're taking part in some story or some other story, which comes down to you from Washington or maybe comes down to you from St. Petersburg, you know, the Russian one, not the Florida one. You're taking part in some, you're <laughs> taking the, part in- Or it could be the Florida one of Trump <laughs> there. <laughs> right. In fairness, it could be. <laughs> uh, but you're taking, so participation means suddenly you're taking part in some kind of story, right? Well, and so I, like I, should those, have, I should have interviewed you for the book I've got coming out in January called Free the Press, because that's, the, that's a very, you're, what you're talking about, about news deserts and participation is mm -hmm. so, so pointed and so- I mean, there are reporters I know today that are that have never gone to a city council meeting. There are fewer. There are half. There are twice the number of people on this planet today as on the day that I was born, and half the number of reporters. Media mm -hmm. consolidation, which began under Ronald Reagan, has destroyed independent journalism. Those news deserts that you talk about. There are places I've worked 
We can start yeah. right here in suburban Maryland. When I first moved here, there were there was a daily newspaper, there were two weekly, three weekly newspapers, a couple of radio stations, and the Washington Post that covered county politics. Yeah. Today, no one is, and yeah. there's yeah. you know there's no one sitting in the county council meetings. There's no reporters sitting in a city council meeting. There's very few city you know very few reporters that cover city hall and know how to walk in and know who the players are to right. ask the questions and to look for information. I, I have run into reporters at the white house who have no idea how to go to a city clerk's office and get information. And yeah. yet they're covering yeah. the white house. Yeah. So yeah, I, it, the access part of it. And I, the news deserts are huge. And I, I think that's helped the divide the country and, and has driven us into two different camps, tribal camps. No, absolutely. That's that's how the whole logic works. Because if you and I, let's say, you know, you and I have different views on issues of national politics, but neither of us wants the city council to be corrupt. Right. You know, neither of us wants our kids to drink to drink lead or mercury in the water. Right. And, and maybe and so, we want that stoplight down at the corner where there, all the accidents are going on, and right, we need the right. potholes fixed in our, right. in our street. Right. Yeah. And so we'll continue to disagree about abortion or whatever it might be, but. We will be we'll be more likely to regard one another as people because we both know about this stuff. I mean, the problem now is like most like you don't even know if the city council is corrupt, as you say. You don't even know if there's mercury in the water, right? Um, because there's no one there's no one to tell you these things, and that and without factuality, we lose that basic local bond, right? We don't have the same home truths anymore. We don't have home truths. We just have the stuff that comes from from far away, and the stuff from far away takes our dis different disagreements about national stuff. And, 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 and uses that to polarize us. And it's not just like some kind of passive thing. It's not just the absence of local news. It's also the presence of social media, which pounds into your head and pounds into my head, um, how, we, how we basically belong to different tribes and how this is irreconcilable. And like the, the, the way the internet plays is the opposite of the way you know, you're describing local news because what the internet does is it gives, you the, it gives us the stuff we kind of like already and then occasionally stuff that makes us afraid of other people and the stuff that we like already is actually not what's true you know like we don't want to hear that there's mercury in the water but maybe there is mercury in the water right? but <laughs> i've the been to flint michigan like, there is <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right that's an excellent example of what i mean what's happened you know that's like the whole country in a you know in a test tube right there flint michigan um and so what you know so where we are is that we, we get led down, you know, we get led down the garden path. The internet looks like it has lots of information, but it doesn't actually have the stuff that you need to live a normal life and be a human being. Right. And, and so this book, Tyranny, when you take a look at, and we've gone down the rabbit hole on, on how we get there. But uh, one of the things that the other part that I wanted to hit on that is the graphic part of it also mm -hmm. appeals to a certain uh, age and mindset that will accept and likes that type of information. So visual as well as as uh you know reading what is kinesthetic you know information gathering um do you find that you're, are you hoping to appeal to uh to younger a younger audience with it as well i mean i'm 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 hope i'm hoping to appeal to everybody including people who just know, read differently and learn differently because the book has you know the book has the same number of words i mean i wish we i could kind of <laughs> show it you know to your people but it has the same number of words almost ex you know exactly i updated some stuff but it, it has like within five or ten the same number of words but it now is like a book i mean on tyranny was a pamphlet you can put it in your pocket i i bump into i bump into folks all the time on the street who say i've got your book in my jacket pocket i've got your book in my purse or i have two copies of your book in my purse because i so i can give one away to people i've got um, it in my briefcase and i carry it to the white house with me oh <laughs> I, uh, um 
and but so with with so that the book that Nora Krug and I did together now is now really a book like it's a hundred you know it's it's 136 pages long and it's and it's you know it's got it's a different weight it's twice as big it's a beautiful object which the original one was not and so yeah I mean of course I'm hoping that younger people will read it and like it and like from the very you no know, just came out a week ago but I've now I've seen children reading it now like I've seen children like pick it up as an object and then like get into it which is very yeah. encouraging because that wouldn't have happened with the original one but I'm also I'm I also you know people just read differently like people people process things differently and so I find like I like graphic stuff you know I find when I read the graphic version of Ontarity I feel differently than when I read the other one right yeah. and so maybe people who like to read that different way are going to find a way into it that's what I'm hoping anyway Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kierman. Today, it is a real joy to have a First Amendment warrior with us. She's a civil rights attorney, First Amendment attorney, and I hope I get this right, Nora, uh, this, uh, <laughs> a, a senior <laughs> counsel, for uh, press freedom or at free press. So good. I'm all yeah. of those things. <laughs> uh, so Nora Benavie is with us. She's going to join us and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Stick around. We'll be right back after we pay the bills. Hey, just ask the question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q Podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With us today is Norda Benavides. And Norda, I, I, I gave you a big, you know push there at the beginning as uh, uh and it's a pleasure to have you here and oh brian it is amazing to be here with you i i you're you're fantastic well thank you so are you and you're one of the people that make it possible for me to do my job without uh without the help from the from lawyers such as yourself you'd be talking to me right now from behind bars <laughs> so it's it's always or or uh, you know by smoke signal because nobody would want to have you have me. Oh well, the <laughs> audience should know. I mean, we go way back, you know, and uh, some of the ways that I think your work is important, the access to your work is important. Uh, I'm really glad that we finally get to do this. We have been talking about this for months now. Yes, we have. So I one of the things we talked about before we started today is the failures of the press, and boy, that's yeah. I'd love to spend the next twenty minutes talking about the failures of the press today, but let's start with you. Why, where do you think we failed? Oh, it's a, such a long answer. So I'm going to talk, you know, first about where I think we've failed recently. And that is around the Arizona audit of the yes. election results from 2020. 
I just think that the, the failures were colossal in the coverage there. And it's a great example of how failures are happening much broader for the institution. You know, for the most part, media covered that election audit and the results confirming that Biden had won in 2020 by saying, oh, these election audit results confirm. The problem is that what those narratives do is they failed to really talk about the disinformation inherent in what was happening with people saying the election results needed to be confirmed. I think that there was a lot of empirical evidence from November. There were election officials that were saying, we can confirm that Biden won. And yet Arizona officials and Republicans were saying, we have to conduct an audit. So the framing somehow that these results were legitimate that they told us something we didn't already know was like this totally missed opportunity to engage at a deeper level by saying, actually, we didn't even need this audit to begin with. This was a sham. This was a total red herring so that we didn't have to talk about something else. Why do you think we failed though? I mean, is that is it because we're inherently stupid? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to think you're not. And I certainly don't think you are. Well, thank um, you. I think that the 24-hour news cycle has made everything so clickbait-y. We have to come up with the quick hits. We have to come up with analysis that seems relevant without taking a beat and saying, how are we situating this headline in the larger democratic issues that we're seeing across the country? Um, and and I, I just think that the media doesn't quite understand or has gotten right that people will implicitly take in what they see. So there has to be a much more- Well, that's thoughtful. because we implicitly take in what we see. Exactly. And, 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 I, I, and, I just, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna, here's where I, I, I think we need to drill deeper. I think yeah. the problem is everything that you said, but there's a root cause to it. And that's because as media has consolidated over the last 40 years, we, mm. bought, each, we bought each other out, we bought each other out. Ronald Reagan made it possible, and every president since then has destroyed uh, the free speech by yeah. allowing us, by taking off the guardrails and allowing us to be strictly about, I, I maintain that uh, journalism and capitalism, is they aren't compatible. And so mm. when, when you make it strictly all about making money, of course, it's going to be about clickbait because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be what people want to see rather than what they need to see and then as we bought each other out the bottom lines haven't it, we're now all about the bottom line and the easiest way to yeah. save money is to hire people fresh out of school pay them a low wage and then boot them out after a few years rather than letting people uh work for three to five years to get experience before they do you know they go and cover stuff that's a little deeper i mean i run into reporters in the White House all the time. This is their first job in the business. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. shocking to me. There's no, so the ability to be taken in, as you said, you know, that extends to us because we don't have the experience. We don't have the, um, in, I, I guess it's the intestinal fortitude, but it's really mm -hmm. just the, the industrial memory. We don't have what we had anymore. Uh, it's not there. Well, and the industry has just declined so much. I mean, look at where we're at. You know, the I think the internet age affected, of course, the financial models here. It, local papers have closed at alarming rates. 
I remember during yep. the early COVID days, people were excited just to think, oh, I should turn to a local paper to get information because people have so turned to other sources. They've turned to Facebook, they've turned to YouTube, you know, things that I think are more populated with junk content. And journalists are really suffering. So I part of me feels bad for the industry that so much is hanging in the balance as radios consolidate, newspapers consolidate, yeah. as you mentioned. It, it's a rough, uh, you know, the phrase is news desert and, and there's a real yes. news desert you know, crisis happening, but that doesn't honestly shield reporters from doing more thoughtful engagement with communities. Well, I mean, and, they don't have the, the, I don't think they have, most reporters do not have the education. And I mean, education, not in a schoolroom environment, but in real life, they don't have the experience to do what you're suggesting we do. I can't tell you the number of reporters who don't know where to find, how to even develop a source and, or to how, how to go into a, a, a city council room and, and or, or how to, you know, and cover a city council or to go to the county clerk's office and dig through, you know, uh, filings to find the stuff that you need to back the reports that you're doing or how to fill out a FOIA. All of I that. know. Well, uh, that's yeah. tough. <laughs> <laughs> think, I mean, think about how long it took you to develop like critical listening skills or research, you know, interest to dive into and find sources there's a lot of emotional intelligence that goes into it. There's also just like a lot of life experience where you have to get to a point where you have enough in you to be able to be present with people and give them the coverage they need. Right. And you can't do that at scale right now. I don't no, think we and, can. And I think you're right about the news desert. There's local newspapers have just ceased to exist. And the best example I can give of how the media consolidation has hurt us is when I was working in a, Laredo, Texas in the 80s, there were 100,000 people. There were two English-speaking newspapers, one uh, Spanish-speaking newspaper. There were three affiliates, mm. network affiliates, and one uh, Hispanic network affiliate, and three radio stations that did news. I went back mm. there this spring. There are now three times the number of people, 300,000 people. There's one television station, one newspaper. That's it. And three yeah. times the number of people. So we are, we're just disappearing. And so it's much easier for the crooks to run rampant. You know, you can take a look at, you can take a look at Congress and see that. <laughs> I know. And, and imagine where people go, you know, when we talk about the media's failures, like some of it's that they're not writing compelling stories, because where do you go if you're not feeling like as a reader, you're given the stuff you want? You're going to turn yeah. to other content. Um, right. So Spanish, look at, I mean, look at non-English media. There is very little. Frankly, the stuff I see is so low quality. Ugh. You know, when we think of the hallmarks of journalism, it's just, it's, I wouldn't say it's junk, but like, what's the thing above junk? junk? <laughs> you know, it's like right there right. at the top of junk. Right. Um, it's sort of somewhere like Daily Mail, you know, meets, I don't know, like, advertising <laughs> news of the world <laughs> exactly Bigfoot so ain't my baby <laughs> yeah, exactly and um god what else are other media failures i mean i think there's a long historical failure for communities of color you know yeah. in detroit i did a research report with my colleagues back when i was at pen america and we looked at not only where there aren't papers but how papers will 
how journalists just don't cover the story. So, you know, your podcast is like, just ask the question. Like, that's how I feel about media. I'm like, just write the story. Just like write what people are talking about. Yes. Um, and ask the questions that people want asked. I, instead of trying to play gotcha and games with uh, public officials. We're so, we're so uh, admiring of, of access and we'll sell our soul just for a ride on Air Force One that we'll mm. forget that what we're there to do. And, you know, the, the title of this podcast comes from something that Helen Thomas told me the first day I walked into the White House. She said, look, don't be afraid to ask a question. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Goes, it does, she said, who cares what the other members of the, you're not there for them. She said, mm. look, it, it doesn't matter what the answer it is. It doesn't matter if they even answer it. But the fact that you ask the question means they cannot deny that it's been put on the record. So oh. just ask the question. I love that so much. I, you know, there's sort of a symbolism, like, I don't want to get corny here, but the first amendment lawyer in me is just really hearing you. And I'm like, this is what we need more of. There's a phrase I use. I don't, I didn't, we've never talked about this, Brian. Yes. I always tell people, I say, just say the thing. Yes. Like, there is a moment and things must be on the record. And yes. when we, when we kind of employ a, like what people think of as like strategic silence or a waiting and seeing a political jockeying, I'm like, it's a detriment to the movement. And uh, so I always say like, just say the thing, like there's a moment and things need to be said. And it's like exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's a, don't edit yourself sometimes. I mean, it, it, if you're going to be, if you're going to edit yourself, when you ask the, I mean, I'll edit the words in the questions so I can get it in pointedly. But if you're going to sequester yourself before anyone else does, then you're not helping the First Amendment out at all. Don't be afraid to ask it. And the other thing I, I tell young reporters that come to me, I, I the thing that bothers me a lot about young reporters in journalism is I, you know, I mentored a lot of them and they would come to me and go, here's what I think. And I would go, I don't care what you think. I barely care what I think. What do mm -hmm. you know? What, what, what can you show me? What can you, and it's, it's, you know, a lot of times in journalism, it's always, we're relying on what other people say, but there are court records, there are documents you can go fishing for that are actual verifiable facts. And we've lost the ability to do that as we chase clickbait, mm. I think. But that's, I mean, as a first amendment lawyer, you've got to look and just go, what am I defending? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I've defended over the course of my career speech. I do not like, yes. you know, I, I mean, I was an ACLU lawyer in my early, you know, baby days as, as an attorney. And I had to defend speech and the idea of really offensive speech because I feel that the principle matters so much. And we've kind of, I think societally we've lost that yeah. sense that even if I don't like what you say, I'm going to defend it. I disagree it with what you say, but will defend to death your right to say it. No matter how yeah. that, that, that's how you keep, I always liken it to keeping, you know, you take the, the top off the boiling kettle and let, let the steam escape. It's far better to, to hear what people say, even if you don't agree with them, rather than to keep them from saying it. And then you don't know what they're going to do behind your back. And it becomes, I, I think when you, when you put that top on it, the steam boils up and people become, I, I think that's one of the reasons why we're a violent society because we don't listen to each other. We don't listen to what people have to say, even if we don't like it, we'll cancel them. 
<laughs> it used to be, I, I disagree oh, with- Don't what, get me started, Brian. Go, go, girl. Oh, <laughs> man. I, well, you know, people use that phrase as something when they're hurt and when they feel they have a right to something. And um, I actually think, hey, say the thing, but you're not free to say something absent consequences by others, which is really right. what cancel culture is. Um, so I find it a little bit of like, a non-starter concept that's gotten so much attention over the last few years. It also carries with it, I think, this like undercurrent that there is a zero-sum game when it comes to speech, that there is only so much speech that all of us can have or speak ourselves. So if you're speaking, maybe, that could potentially limit my ability. And if you're speaking and people don't like it, then all of a sudden, what do you do? You're like, oh, well, I'm going to take up less of the pie. Um, because I don't want the consequences of the thing I'm saying being horrible. And that's like a very new phenomenon that I'm seeing um, yeah, all makes over com- makes comedy tough. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> because comedy is offending people. I mean, at some point or other. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kiram, and with us today, uh, joining us again is Dr. Hoffman, who's uh, 30 years of experience building and managing large, successful research and develop programs, uh, developmental programs, and uh, he, he's actually a scientist, and we've decided to bring him in to, to talk a little bit about science. What a concept. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, it's a pleasure to have you back. Brian, it's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> we're going to... Uh, we're going to take the inevitable break to sell, uh, you know, the air. And so when we, when we get back, we'll talk a little bit about COVID-19, the variant uh, and vaccines and horse dewormers. Oh, boy. Stick around. We'll be right back. Attention, JATQ listeners. This is a friendly reminder that our weekly newsletter will be moving to the online newsletter database called Substack. Our entire back catalog of weekly updates will be available there as well as Brian's articles from Playboy and Bulwark. You can check all of that out at justaskthequestion.substack.com. That's justaskthequestion.substack.com. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question with me, Dr. Stephen Hoffman, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the pandemic. When we last had you on the show, I gosh, that was back in December, uh, we were talking about how the pandemic would end. And I don't think anyone could have predicted uh, this turn of events. I, I mean, we did worry about variants, but uh, people uh, holding off on getting vaccines has been very problematic. And I guess I just want to ask, let's start with that question. You're a scientist. Is the vaccine safe? I'm not sure, Brian, if there's ever been a safer vaccine. No really? time in the history of the world have 
five to six billion doses of a new vaccine being, being administered in six to nine months. Um, and, and let me just step back for a second because it, it, I am confounded just like you are and many others are regarding the, the breadth of response to the vaccine. So on June 11th, the American Medical Association announced a survey of practicing physicians in the United States. So that's three and a half months ago. At that point, 96% of practicing medical doctors in the United States were fully vaccinated. If we're going to look for advice, who are we going to look to other than our doctors, all right? Right. If 96% of the practicing doctors, now we do know that there's problems elsewhere in the healthcare profession with as medical assistants, some nurses and so on, but the doctors have voted overwhelmingly. They're the ones best educated, best trained, the most experienced to interpret the data, to look at the side effects, they're the ones giving it. They're the ones seeing their patients and they voted with their feet and their arms to be vaccinated. So I start with that. The amount of disinformation out there regarding vaccines is beyond extraordinary and very sad that such a high percentage of our society has rejected truth and science. Yeah, it's almost like we're in li reliving the medieval ages to me. It's it seems a lot like well, that, but a technological middle age. Well, the but the difference is that we didn't have science in the middle middle ages in, the, in in medieval times. There, you know, we were there was a lot of this. You know, this came from powers that be. It came from God. It came from all over. You know, whatever. Uh, it came from evil spells. Um, I hope that most of us understand that's not the case with COVID-19. Um, but I have to go back to this issue about that all the doctors are getting vaccinated, right? No, that makes um, sense. Why? And, and now, why would you be so happy to take a drug, starting with chloroquine, other drugs, you know, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, now ivermectin, um, and that... There's no real data that they that they do anything. Um, well, except I, I don't get it quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, well, in but, talking uh, to so let me just back up for a second, Brian. Yeah. Let me just say something. Sure. I'm a tropical infectious disease expert. Yeah. Chloroquine was introduced in the late 1940s for treating malaria. Ivermectin, which is a parasitic infection, ivermectin was introduced in the late 70s, early 80s for treating dog heartworm a parasitic infection, and then used to treat river blindness, onchocerciasis in Africa, a tropical parasitic infectious disease. So I'm well aware of the two drugs that have gotten the most notoriety and have used them tremendously in my career, all right? So it, it's just astonishing to me that, that the lay public would be going out in droves trying to get take ivermectin as opposed to the vaccine for which we have so much data. And, and just one last point that I've made when I've talked to other people. Six months ago, when there was the issue of blood clots in the brain primarily, right. particularly from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, 
six cases in six million doses were identified. And we stopped the, we, first of all, we identified. Secondly, it was stopped by the FDA and the CDC from using it for a few weeks until an analysis could be done. That's an extraordinary low rate of any kind of side effect. Yes. That's one in a million. It could be literally, one in 200,000, one in 500,000, one in a million. The polio vaccine that everybody gave to their children and so on causes polio in one case in a million, all right? Um, <laughs> the oral polio vaccine, yet we had no problem with that. So it, it's rather extraordinary. The logic here baffles me. Well, it, I, I think it's a lack of logic, but that's just me. Well, but let's, let, let, me, let me float down that stream a little bit. When I talk to people who uh, are reticent to get vaccinated, one of the, or, or flat out oppose a vaccination, one of the things they always tell me is I, I've done my own research. And I'd really like to know what that entails because I, if, if that entails talking to people and gathering anecdotal evidence, that's not my idea of research. The research has actually been done by the scientists. So when someone says, hey, I, I want to do my own research, I imagine them with, you know, like uh, test tubes and vials and, and an incubator <laughs> and, and, and a centrifuge machine. And, and I don't think anybody's doing that. But is there, are there things that people who are, are reticent to take the vaccine, are there things that they can do that can reassure them that, hey, look, take, just get vaxxed, just get it? So let me back up from that for a second and say, okay. um, if you believe that, that the director of CDC or Tony Fauci or somehow is out to get you, or is out to I've heard that one too. making some kind of money, like billions of dollars, you know, on this because they're selling a vaccine, then you got a problem. I, I don't know what to tell you because these are career public servants. Um, they're not getting any money out of this. You know, it would be one thing if you talked about the CEO of Moderna or something or other like that. Right. But the CDC is compiling on a daily basis the results of what's going on in the United States. The World Health Organization is compiling those results in the world. Different governments are compiling that, those data and um, there's nothing there. I would say go to the CDC and, and if you, if, if you want to believe them. If you don't believe them, what, what can I tell you? I mean, I'm a medical doctor. 96% of the doctors are getting vaccinated. The CDC says this. Um, so, um, you know, I've talked to people and one of the things they say, more people have died from COVID vaccine than any vaccine in history, right? First of all, if you took, if, if you took 6 billion or 2 billion people and just watched them, a very high, you know, many of them are going to die, right? <laughs> I mean, they're going to die during the next, you know, and, and so that, that, of course, there's a lot of people dying who got the COVID vaccine because 2 billion people have gotten the vaccine <laughs> or more at this point. I haven't looked up today's figures. You know, last I looked at- But they're not, six, they're not specific. Million. Yeah, they're not specifically dying from the vaccine. Correlation right. is not causation. It's just because, right. you know, post hoc ergo well, proper just, I mean, if I did, if I, exactly. And if I look at, it was the same thing happened with the, the, you know, the sinus, the, the thrombosis they were looking at, 
right. is that the the incidence in the regular population was not much was pretty much the same um, as what was happening in the vaccinees. But you had you were surveying carefully uh, six million people, five million people, two million, whatever it might be, and of course there's going to be things that happen to those people. You could also easily say the vaccine causes automobile accidents or gunshot wounds because in the concept, you know, context of this, that also occurs. But that's why we do all of these double-blind placebo-controlled trials. When they have been done, there's nothing that comes up. And right. um, of course, you, you people get their arm hurts. They do, you know, particularly younger people can have uh, fever in episodes for 24 hours and malaise. Um, there are some some cases of in younger um, uh, males, particularly uh, heart inflammation, but it's a very low level. It resolves, and um, you know the public health benefits are so extraordinary. So let me tell you. I'll tell you a story that I that I I had a, a friend of mine um, who is a very liberal very humanitarian, goes on missions to build houses and so on and so forth. Um, just the finest guy you ever met. And he mentioned to me that he wasn't vaccinated. And I said to him, um, we I went through a long period of discussing it with him. At the end of it, when I was over, my wife said, why are you yelling at this guy? Who are you talking to? Who are you yelling at? And, and I said, look, if I know who you are as a person, if you go out, drive home and you see a car on fire and there's a, two children in there or whatever, I know that you're the kind of person who will risk your life to go in and try to save them. Now you're telling me that you won't take a vaccine with well-established public health impact that might have a one in a 5 million chance of something going wrong with you. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, the the they're just the logic doesn't you know doesn't hold. Well, that's when you when you talk to people like that, for example, um, and they say, you know, one of the things that they do say, and you touched on it, is that well, the reason why this we don't need a vaccine, and this uh, and the disease was created in a lab, militarized by the uh, you know it was a, a militarization of a of a of a vac of a virus in a Sure. Chinese, yeah, in a in a Chinese uh, yeah. lab, and that uh, everyone's making money off of it. And I see that misinformation everywhere. And when you ask people where they got that from, it's they heard it from someone, they saw it on a uh, on a YouTube, or they saw, it, and that's the real real investigation that they're doing. So, how do you attack that as a scientist? What, what because my I, I'm going to tell you right now, I I feel like what this has exposed more than anything else. And I was going to spend a second block on that, but I'll get right to it. It seems to me like we just need better science education in this country. It seems like when we adopted all, you know, no child left behind, they all got left behind and nobody understands science anymore. The other thing that I hear, so that's the second, the first question. The second question is I hear, well, science keeps changing its mind. And so I can't trust it. And I go, look, science isn't politics. When you change your mind in science, that's because you've accumulated more data, which allows you to make a better decision. So, and they and people will say, "Well, I don't understand." And I go, "Well, do you believe the Earth revolves around the Sun, or that the Sun revolves around the Earth?" And they go, "Well, I'm not an idiot. Of course, the Earth revolves around the Sun. 
And, and most people will say it's not flat. So I consider that a, a, a step in the right direction. But I said, hey, well, if you believe that the earth revolves around the sun, why? Science told you 2000 years ago that it was the other way around. Why it changed its mind. And I, I, I find as a lay person, it's very difficult to get people to understand that A, the accumulation of data dictates changing of, of mind. And why, and then go back to the first question. And so have at it, it's all yours. <laughs> How do you approach let, it as a scientist? Let me answer the second, let, let me answer the second part of this first, all okay. right? Um, we haven't had a pandemic in a hundred years. Okay, you want me to tell you why scientifically we haven't? I don't know, all right? The, the, you know, there was no perfect storm. There wasn't the right conditions. There wasn't the right virus. Um, and um, we've been able, probably don't have a flu pandemics the way we're talking about because of we had vaccines, all right? And a good percentage of the population was vaccinated, had previously experienced it. And so it, it would always die out. You know, it comes, right. it goes. We have 80,000 deaths, you know, one year, 20,000 another from flu. But here we have this virus, and let's not go to who, where it was created and where it came from. And we were scared 20 years ago with SARS, right? Yeah. The first one. Yes. Um, and fortunately, it didn't have the staying power, the penetration ability of this. But there was a lot of fear for a few months there. Um, and let me just say, our response to this virus now is because... Some people never gave up on trying to develop a vaccine for the first SARS, right? So a lot of what we have now for the vaccines and why we could move so fast was because of the first SARS. Um, now you come along and you get this disease that behaved in a way that no infectious agent that we've ever dealt with in the last hundred years has ever behaved. And you're, so we're learning. Uh, in the beginning, uh, let's start with some of what people say is the misinformation. They say, in the beginning, Tony Fauci told us not to wear a mask, all right? Well, first of all, that's because we had a shortage of masks, and we needed masks for our healthcare personnel first. And so if we have a run on every mask in the country, um, what about the people who are really on the front lines, all right? Yeah. Shortly thereafter, we went to a masking policy, all right? I still have people call me up and say, well, masks don't really work. And of course, we're seeing guidance coming out for getting better masks, all right? Well, the next N95s time you have an operation, don't have a mask from the doctor. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, doctors have been wearing masks, you know, you think they shouldn't be? You want to go back yeah, to the right. Middle Ages? No gloves, <laughs> no mask, dig in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so, then, then, but let's get to June, all right? Let's go to, you know, I can't talk about, I could talk for hours about this. In June, the vaccines are looking phenomenal. Yeah. The virus is coming down, May, June or whatever. We're watching what's going on in India with the Delta variant and so on. And we're thinking, hey, we really got this thing licked. Could be by the end of the, if we get through, what I would tell people at that point, if we get through Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays and it doesn't explode, we're really gonna be on the other side of this. And then we get a perfect, and now the governors all ease all the restrictions and people behave as if there isn't a, a, a pandemic. 
right? Yes. Yes. Now you have a perfect storm. Three things occur at the same time. We ease the restrictions. We, and by the way, in my company, we never ease the restrictions. And the NIH never eased the restrictions. We right. demanded indoor masks, even though our landlord said we didn't have to have them. So we have a big building with multiple tenants, uh, all biotech or NIH or whatever, uh, 300,000 square feet. And the, the biotech companies didn't ease the restrictions. We had to keep doing indoor masking. But the landlord was following the state directive, which was we could stop it. All right, so now people are going out, people are having weddings, they're going to church, they're doing whatever they might do and behaving as if it's over. Now we get a virus that's three, four, five times more transmissible. And in terms of vaccination, most vaccines, the good ones we have, A, need three doses and need to be boosted, all right? Yeah. We went in with our two dose and one dose vaccines, and we got good responses initially. But I'm a vaccinologist, is my specialty. I never anticipated, particularly the mRNA vaccines, which are not the best way to make antibodies, but they're the fastest way to make anything. They're, they're a technology that's made for the pandemic, all right? Because look at how fast they got them going, yes. right? Um, and, and, um, as you've heard recently from Tony Fauci, the vaccine regimen is probably three doses. We yeah. have another virus, hepatitis B surface antigen. The first vaccine, it was one dose time zero, one month and then or two months and then six months. So now we have waning of immunity from the vaccine. We have a, a virus that's four times more infectious, and we have people behaving as if it's all over. Yeah, it's like a perfect stand. We have all these people that won't get vaccinated. Well, so now you have this perfect storm hitting. So and did we know that was going to occur? We could have, you know, maybe predicted it, but it was looking so good in May that we, you know, we, well, we didn't anticipate approach. The now you have to scientifically going to the next approach. You have, you know, it's, um, um, you know, the head of, of NIH was on one day and he said, if you're playing in the stock market, you're going to keep this keeping in the same stocks all the time, or are you going to be changing? Because based on what the, the business climate is and so on, we look at the jobs thing and we look at the profits and so on. The same thing here. We didn't know, and we're still learning about this virus, and we don't know if it's going to evolve yet again, um, and or we're going to get a different variant that's resistant, so we have to keep up with it. But I believe that the kinds of responses, and look, I can criticize particular announcements. I was not happy when, when the, you know, the CDC and, and governors and came out and said, we can restrict, you know, uh, we can re rescind some of these restrictions. I right. thought that that was foolish. But again, there's economic, there's political, there's all kinds of things going on all at the same time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter.
Now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today is former FBI agent uh, Mark Rossini. Mark, uh, for those who don't know, was instrumental in trying to inform our government prior to 9-11 that we had a terroristic threat on our hands, and uh, he, he couldn't get the right people to listen. So, Mark, it's, it's a pleasure to have you with us, um, and, and I, you, I love to... As we go into the break, I'd like you to think about one question, and that is, what did we do wrong? So (laughs) stick around for that answer. We'll be right back. Attention, JATQ listeners. This is a friendly reminder that our weekly newsletter will be moving to the online newsletter database called Substack. Our entire back catalog of weekly updates will be available there, as well as Brian's articles from Playboy and Bulwark. You can check all of that out at justaskthequestion.substack.com. That's justaskthequestion.substack.com. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question, and I'm uh, your host, Brian Karam. I I even remember my name today. And with this is former FBI agent Mark Rossini. And Mark, you were instrumental in trying to uh, uh, tell the country I mean, this is not a, a, a breaking story. You you were the guy that was trying to let people know that we yeah. had a problem uh, prior to 9-11. What, what, what went wrong? Why, how did we well, fail? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and to, be, to be fair, uh, it's not just me that wanted to tell the FBI. Well, you have to go back to history, and there's plenty of stuff you can search on Google about me, in particular, a 22-page document that I prepared and... Uh, Brian, you feel, feel free to put that link to my Google Drive on your oh, podcast I will. so people can read the actual story of what happened. But the quick story is that in 99, April, January 1999, uh, I was assigned to the CIA's ALEC station, A-L-E-C. It was a specific special station set up by the CIA in 1996 in order to um, track Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, but actually it was really set up primarily initially to go after bin Laden's, uh, look for his financial ones, where, how he was getting paid and supporting the, let me close this window, by the way. And your your mic is a little muffled. Oh, sorry. All right, let's see. That better or worse? Or? Better, better. Okay, yeah, we got supposed to the background noise of the street. So, okay, so, Take two. two. No, go so, ahead. Oh, we'll, okay. we're, no, we're great at editing. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, Alex Station was set up in 1996, uh, specifically by George Tennant. And he put this gentleman named Mike Scheuer in charge of it. Mike had been an analyst in the CIA's uh, intelligence directorate. And his experience was specifically uh, looking at Eastern European espionage issues. Uh, but he was a brilliant analyst, uh, a very smart mind. But Mike, unfortunately, has his own issues regarding his beliefs about his abilities. And he sent some statements after 9-11 that, quite frankly, are, are, are blood-curdling and cringing. But let that go. Such as? Um, <laughs> such as the only thing that happened, the best thing that happened on 9-11 was that the towers fell on John O'Neill. John O'Neill being the FBI special agent in charge. Wow. 
who had retired just about 10 days before the 9-11 attacks. And uh, Shoyer hated O'Neill with a passion, despised the FBI, despised the CIA as well, because he thinks he's smarter than all in there. Uh, but he said that to a congressional in a congressional committee. And the congressman, you can find the clip on YouTube, yeah. the congressman just looked at him, just said, looked at him, just was, how do you respond to that? How do you um, respond? But but that aside, he was- That just, aside. Yeah. That aside. So Alex Station was created to go after or monitor bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Okay. So after the Nairobi bombing, um, I had, I became- And the Nairobi graduate. bombing was- Okay. <laughs> I became, I, yeah, I, okay. I became an FBI agent in 1991, and my first six years I was working predominantly criminal matters, white collar crime, kill trafficking, uh, public corruption cases, et cetera. And then in 1997, I joined the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York. August 7th, 1998, the U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya, were simultaneously bombed at about 10 a.m. local time in those countries. And then I was sent to FBI headquarters for a few weeks and then went out to Nairobi for the following three months and got a baptism by fire about Al-Qaeda, who they were, because I predominantly, when I joined the task force, was looking at matters concerning Hezbollah, the FARC, the IRA, ETA in Spain, et cetera. Right. Didn't really, the, the Al-Qaeda squad, I-49, the legendary I-49 was right next to me. I had been on I-48 originally. But sent to Nairobi, I come back just prior to Thanksgiving. And right after that, O'Neill, John O'Neill, who was a special agent in charge of the National Security Division in New York, because we didn't have a counterterrorism division at the time, we had a National Security Division, terrorism was under that. And John said to me, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go to replace Danny. Danny Coleman had been an FBI agent at Alex Station before me, assigned to monitor Al-Qaeda from 1996. And I said, sure. So I replaced Danny in uh, January 1999 around and my role really was not really defined it was really weird it was kind of like this quasi liaison uh, role but really in a nutshell it was more you big keep, boys decided you keep moving around and your microphone keeps flexing around so. okay <laughs> really that when, when when the big boys decided to work on a case when the he respective headquarters said, we're going to work this joint matter, then my role was to be the person that, I'll, come in, I'll try to steady it. My, my role was to be that person that made sure that the communications flowed and that the information was given back and forth. So if you want an, uh, an example, um, Nairobi bombing. Uh, so people need to be interviewed. Intelligence has to be received on both ends. I was the proverbial you know, monkey in the middle, making sure that the past got passed. In January... 2000, a cable comes in from Kuala Lumpur station of the CIA, notifying them about this meeting, this terror summit meeting that took place in Malaysia. And the, and the cable also recapped all the events which led up to the terror summit. And it explained how the CIA had followed one of the meeting attendees, uh, a gentleman named Khalil Midhar, from his home in Sanaa, Yemen, to Dubai, Dubai then to Kuala Lumpur. And it was discovered in the course of investigation that was done on him in Dubai, because Dubai authorities went to his room, took his passport and photocopied it. It was discovered that he had a visa to visit the US. My colleague, Special Agent Doug Miller of our Washington field office, 
felt compelled, as he should be, as he should have, to inform the FBI of this event in Malaysia and the fact that a gentleman who attended a meeting of terrorists had a visa to, to come to the US. We embarked, we endeavored to let the CIA, have the CIA tell the FBI. And not, and not to interrupt, but no. it's not just, this isn't just politics in a vacuum. This guy was one, it ended up being one of the pilots, right? He's one of the pilots. He is one yeah. of the killers. Right? So you're you you were endeavoring to let the the United States, the FBI, know that this potential terrorist was on the loose, and as a right. matter of fact, he did uh, was heavily involved in in taking down the twin towers. Yes. So you have to understand also, it's not just the FBI that would have been involved or informed if my colleague's memo, what's called the CIR or Central Intelligence Report, had been sent. Immediately, the FBI would have notified then U.S. Customs. Uh, they would have put them in the tech system. They would have been stopped at the airport. Maybe they would have been denied. Maybe their visa would have been revoked. We don't know. But the simple fact of the matter is that Khalid Mihar arrived in America on January 15, 2000, along with another terrorist named Nawaf al-Hazmi. Who was also FBI, a, a... Who was a, also a pilot and a killer. Right. And you were told not to tell the I FBI. I was told not to. What happened was, and it's in, it's in, okay. Well, I lay out everything in my memo in detail, okay, as to what happened and why. And the short answer is why is politics. Because the black oil coming out of the ground is more important than the blood of innocent victims. And that's the, that's the goddamn bottom line. And you can't get around it because of Saudi sensitivities. And look, I have all due respect for the sovereignty of the Saudi kingdom and as a nation, as I do with any nation, with the exception of you know, Taliban and Afghanistan. But you, it, it, but no one is above the law. Okay, and you're I understand the relationship. Put oil money. You're saying we put oil money ahead of innocent lives. We put oil money and our economy over innocent lives because the big overarching picture is the world economy, and the world economy runs on oil. And we, America, are the world economy. And moreover, the price of a barrel of oil is pegged to the U.S. dollar. It is not pegged to the ruble, the Chinese renminbi, nor, nor the euro. It is pegged to the U.S. dollar. And since, and since the end of World War II, we have had a special relationship with the Saudis along with the British. Okay, Remember, the British put the House of Saud in power. They kicked the Hashemites out of the Arabian Peninsula and renamed it the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Go back and watch Lawrence of Arabia. Go back and look at history. I mean, no, and, and, and I know it's kind of like tongue in cheek, but the, the his, history is there to show how we got there. And I'm not blaming to a degree our administration, current administration and past administrations, because look, oil is power. Oil runs an economy. Oil is what makes America strong. I get it. And access to light sweet crude is, is important. And having our presence in the Middle East there is important. And our air bases in Saudi Arabia and our brokering and making sure the safety and security of Israel stays, okay, from a moral obligation. We, ha we have that duty. I get that. But to cower and not reveal the truth and just admit that we treat them special or in, in face or in direct contrast to sometimes our, the lives of our innocent Americans that's just wrong. Yeah, that's well, just, I come, mean, where, where is the line in the sand to stop this and say, 
yes, special relationship. Yes, we understand you could fuck us over if you change the price of oil from not being pegged to a dollar. Yes, you might kick our air bases out, but when does it end? You know, and it's not just me who's been trying to say this, that something was right. really wrong. You know, look at look at look at Richard Clark, who you can't impeach at all, saying, look, the CIA was working with the Saudi Mabahith to try to recruit and understand what these guys were doing. And they didn't want the FBI involved because the big bad FBI in the form of Special Agent John O'Neill, Special Agent Charles John O'Neill, my boss, would have said, I don't give a fuck about your politics. If I'm going to round up these Saudi boys once you start investigating them, I'm going to arrest them. And I really don't care where the chips fall. But that goes in contrast with all the smart people in Washington, D.C., all the people that sit around and have a drink. Now, I've had it with call. the smart people in Washington, oh, D.C. I've had it with them. <laughs> I've had it with them. I had it with their bullshit and their covering and their politics and saving their own ass. OK. And, you know, quit being a fucking hypocrite. You, know, you really want to protect America? Well, then protect America. You really want to put America first and put America first. OK. And sometimes you just got to make the hard choices. And again, I get it. I'm not an idiot. Because the price of the barrel of oil goes up $10 a gallon, we're screwed. And the price of a barrel of oil goes to the ruble or goes to the euro because they're angry. Saudis are angry as head of OPEC and their political sensitivities are all in a tether. And of course, you see, look, Brian, in my memo, if my colleague's memo, his CIR, had been sent to the FBI, the FBI would have been at LAX airport waiting for them. FBI would have followed Khalid Lamihur and Alpha Hasmi. They would have seen them meet with Omar al-Bayoumi. They would have followed them to the apartment in San Diego. We would have gotten a court order from a FISA court, uh, FISA court judge in Washington, D.C., and monitored their movements 24-7, put bugs in their home, broke, gone into their home and done a, a secret search warrant. We would have learned a lot of things. We would have learned about Muhammad Atta and all the other members of the group. 15 of the 19 were Saudis. The CIA has said that they didn't pass the memo. First, they said they didn't pass the memo because so many things were going on. There were so many threats and warnings. They were overwhelmed. It fell through the cracks. Let me tell you something, pal. What happened in Malaysia and the actual real evidence, not intelligence, evidence that Khalil Amidhar had a visa to travel to the U.S. is not a threat or a warning. That is actionable intelligence, okay? Which is the responsibility to act upon to protect America. And you had a duty, they had a duty, under Executive Order 12333, signed by Ronald Reagan back in 1981, okay, which basically, just read through all the bureaucratic crap and bullshit, basically gives and gave the FBI primacy in terrorism cases. Right. Okay? Now, they have to take the lead. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast.